0: Welcome to the John Brown University Chapel Podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. This week's chapel speaker is Scott Erickson. Scott Erickson was the special guest for Spiritual Renewal Week. He is an artist, author, and performance speaker.
1: Nice to be with you all this morning. Uh, My name's Scott. I make stuff and we're gonna make something this morning. Uh, Yeah, I got a new book out, I made this. Uh, It's got like 100 illustrations. It doesn't suck, so it's a good investment. Uh, If you're looking for a book that doesn't suck, this is it. Aaron, this is a gift for you. Thank you so much for being awesome. This morning, uh, I think we all know that life is a miracle, but what do we do when the miracle sucks sometimes? And if there's a giver of that miracle, does it have anything to say about the suckiness? So let's talk about it. This is... Here we go. Now my clicker's not working.
0: Say yes! A liturgy about giving up!
1: It's just long so I can get a drink of water. Friends, I went to college like you. I lived in a house with four other guys. We graduated college, got married. We have kids. There are more kids than there are us now. But ever since we graduated college, every year we rent a cabin up in the Pacific Northwest where they filmed the Twilight series. And we spend a weekend together. We go on hikes together, cook meals together, uh, play games together. It's a great weekend. What we do is uh, a couple people cook the meal and the rest of us, we take all the furniture in the cabin and we make one long table. And then we uh, sit down, have a meal together. And as we sit around the table, we ask each other these two questions. We go, what was your best moment of the year? And what was your worst moment of the year? So let's talk about what was your best moment in the last year? This particular year... For me, when this was all kind of happening to me, my best moment of the year was taking my then young children to Disneyland, which I know is completely cliche. Because, look, if you are a parent or you all hope to be a parent one day, what you'd like to think is that your kids' fondest memories are going to be with you, like playing ball in the backyard with Dad or Sunday night dinners or going camping or something. And no! There's no way those memories are going to be with you. It's going to be with this billion dollar company at their theme park with their characters, and it's amazing. Like, take my money, please. Amazing. I don't know if you've been to Disneyland or Disney World with little kids. Maybe you just went by yourself and you're like, I don't know, there's just lots of strollers around. That's true. But when you go with little kids, it really is magical. It's it's like seeing their real life friends. It's like going, they've just watched screens and screens and screens and then they're like, this is all my friends. They're in real life. Oh my gosh, it's so much fun. Like, I was depressed for three days because I had such a good time, okay? So that was, my <laughs> that was my best moment of that year. Now, what was your worst moment in the last year? What was your worst moment in the last year? This particular year, my worst moment took place on a toilet. Now, it did not involve my bowels, but it took place on a toilet. At the time, my wife and I lived in this kind of quirky house and I put my kids to bed, and when I was walking out of their bedroom into the living room, I noticed that I was crying. Not because we had a a particular amazing bedtime story, but it was something different. I tried to stop myself from crying, but I couldn't. It got deeper and deeper and deeper. And I made my way to our only bathroom, this little tiny bathroom off the kitchen. And I sat on the toilet and I just wept for an hour. Like my wife found me like 15 minutes into it. And she's like, are you okay? And I was like, (laughs) she's like, do you want to talk about it? I was like, I don't know what this is. My tears are me talking about this. And with a little time and a distance from that moment, I realized what was happening to me was that a dream was dying, that there had been some kind of dream in me for a really long time. And somehow physiologically and psychologically, my body started to understand that it wasn't gonna come true. And I was grieving the loss and death of a dream. Now, I'll tell you a little bit later what that dream was, but it would behoove us as a group gathered here uh, in Arkansas to define what is a dream. Because when we talk about the word dream, a dream can mean lots of different things, right? A dream could be the series of images going on in your head at night as your your mind is unloading the day, or a dream could be like a house on a street of dreams or some kind of object or place or place you'd like to be, like a dream vacation or something. Or for a lot of us, when we just say the word dream, we just simply think of Ryan Gosling because that man is a dream and maybe you don't think so but he was in one of your dreams one time and you're like yeah he did show up i like this one i like that he's my dad in this one um there's a lot of things going on in that i should probably talk to somebody about that but if you were to look in the dictionary which is the book about how we use words in our culture right now a dream is defined as a cherished desire and uh uh-oh I just used a sexy word, desire. Desire is a sexy word. Desire is a sexy word because it means you want something, right? And I would like to submit to all of you that what you want is not necessarily some thing or object or place to be, but what you really want is to be the kind of person that can get that object, to have that thing, that can go to that place to be. Look, I'm a visual artist, so I think about a lot, I think a lot about the uh, words that are are Let's start over. I think a lot about the images that are associated to the words that we use. And when I think we use the word dream, I think there's like three images that come to mind. And I'd like to walk through those with you. The first is a tuning fork. If you happen to be in like high school band, right, you'll know that a tuning fork is... Uh, It looks like that. It's a metal object that when you hit it, it creates a note and then all of the instruments tune themselves to that note. It's how a symphony is made. It has a harmonious sound to it, right? When we talk about a dream scenario, a dream of our life, we're talking about a moment where everything feels really tuned in where everything's working together, right? When we say, I wanna have it all, we don't mean I'd like to have a lot of things in my life that are all broken down and don't work. We all know that neighbor in our neighborhood who has 14 broken cars in their yard, that's not having it all. When we say, I wanna have it all, we're saying, I want everything that I have in my life to be working together. I wanna be the kind of person who's tuned in. The second one is a feeling suit. Now, imagine like your favorite outfit, You know, not the outfit that you wear at home, the outfit that you wear at home when you know nobody's going to come over right that outfit for some of you it's a, like a cozy onesie for some of you it's like some old gym shorts that you should have gotten rid of a long time ago or for some of us like my neighbor who's from Scottsdale Arizona apparently his favorite outfit is just flip-flops and i wish i wish we had a higher fence cuz i can't i can't not see that he's older okay he's he visually proves that gravity's real. Do you get what I'm saying? All right. <laughs> You'll find out. When we talk about a dream scenario, we're talking about a time and a moment in our life where everything feels really good feels really cozy it feels good to be in that scenario it feels different than maybe how we feel now cuz now it feels really complicated and you know and dynamic and it doesn't it feels a little scratchy and i want to be in a place that feels a lot better this i want to be the kind of person who feels good in their own skin and then lastly you know put any kind of car you want in here but like a vehicle of destiny right A vehicle is meant to take you somewhere. And when we talk about a dream scenario, what we're talking about is like, I feel like I'm going somewhere, that I'm headed somewhere, that there's some kind of destination. I'm the kind of person that has a destiny. I don't know what your worst moment has been in this last year, but I can guess that it felt like something like a death of a dream, some kind of loss, some kind of way things didn't turn out the way you thought. Maybe it's a physical loss of somebody you know, a physical or just like an emotional loss of some like hope, (laughs) Uh, of thinking that you had a future, something like that. And if if a dream is like a tuning fork, then the death of a dream just feels like you're in some awful-sounding situation. If a dream feels like a cozy suit, a feeling suit, then the death of a dream feels like being stuck in a burlap sack and just itchy and you can't get out of it. And if a dream is like feeling like you're headed somewhere, that you have a purpose, then the death of a dream feels like being on the side of the road, broken down, and having no backup plan. And then this, this is where the voice of giving up comes to us. This is the moment that the voice of giving up comes to us. It's really helped me in my life to personify, like, my fears. Like, it's a great exercise. Because when we talk about our fears or voices in our head, right, they can be too vague and ethereal. So if you put some skin on it, put clothes on it, give it a name, you can talk to it and deal with it. And I want to do that with the voice of giving up. And I would like to do that running it through the filter of the movie Jurassic Park 2 The Lost World. Now, I'm not talking about Jurassic World and all this Chris Pratt reboot. I'm talking about Jurassic Park. I'm talking about Jeff Goldblum and Laura Dern and Sam what's-his-face? You know, written by Michael Crichton, directed by Steven Spielberg, we saw dinosaurs on the big screen and it filled us with joy and wonder. It changed our lives. And Hollywood made like a billion dollars and they were like, let's do it again. So they made a second movie and it's not as good. And now I wasn't there for the production meeting, but I'm pretty sure this is what was on the whiteboard. And a producer's like, So we've had dinosaurs eating people on an island. How could we get to dinosaurs eating people in Southern California? And that's pretty much what the movie's about. And look, Steven Spielberg came back and directed this film, and he's given us many cinematic magical moments in our lifetime. But how he solves this problem is complete garbage, and we should not let him get away with it. I could keep going, but I'll move on. So... There's a Tyrannosaurus Rex walking around San Diego. It's thirsty. There's swimming pools. You get it. Here's what the voice of giving up is like. You're in your bed at night, and you're like, you know what? I've had this dream. I've had this thing I've always wanted to do. I'm going to start on it tomorrow. That's right. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to get up early and start in that dream. And then this overwhelming presence comes in your bedroom, looks you straight in your soul, and goes, "Uh uh-uh, give up. That's what the voice of giving up is like. So for the rest of this morning together, we're going to refer to the voice of giving up as the Tyrannosaurus Rex of giving up. Now, I've had long conversations with the T-Rex of giving up. It has very convincing arguments. I'm sure you've heard them too. But if I was to summarize the arguments that consistently come up, there's about three things that it says to me most often. First, nothing's going to change. Hey, this miserable moment you're in, this miserable day you're having, guess what? This is every day for the rest of your life. It's never going to get any better. It's never going to change. It's always going to be miserable. And thinking about doing misery for the rest of my life sounds completely uninviting. The second thing it says, it says, you suck and are ugly. It gets really personal for some reason, <laughs> like knocks you down and like kicks you while you're down there. But what it's saying is like there's a path of success you would like to walk. And guess what? You don't have what it takes. In fact, there's something that's wrong with you that you're not in charge of that's always going to prevent you from getting there. And then the last thing it says, it says, dying is better than living, or giving up is better than trying. And look, (laughs) yeah, that happened to me once. Um, And look, if we're going to start talking about dying, we need to understand that dying comes on a spectrum, right? Because you can binge watch something every single night and not have the conversation you know you need to have. You can tap your phone endlessly or open a bottle or do something else to numb the pain that keeps calling your name day after day after day. And you can go all the way to the end and go, I just don't even want to be here anymore. Now, the thing about this room and the thing about this spectrum is that there are those of us in this room, or at least we know somebody who's gone through some kind of giving up, some kind of dying, because we thought that was the way we should, that's what we wanted to do, and then came through it and came on the other side and, and can say, was it worth it or not? Like, I had a friend who was addicted to video games, like 13% of this room. And he, it was like ruining his marriage, like his wife was talking about divorce. And one night they had this big argument. She goes to bed, and he's just like, I'm going to blow off some steam. I'm going to just play games. I'm just playing games. What's the big deal? And so he's like, play, 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 play. play." And then he eventually looks out the window, and he notices that the sun is coming up. He had played games all night long. And he realized what he was doing, and he picked up his Xbox, and he went outside, threw it on the ground. He stomped it into pieces, and he's like, I went and got help. And it turns out I had all of this emotional trauma as a kid that the intimacy of marriage was bringing up and I wasn't dealing with it. So I had a friend who kind of gave up, who kind of went through this dying, came out on the other side and said, no, there's nothing for you there. It's just distraction, man. It's just distraction. We might be somebody who's gone through some kind of giving up, some kind of death. We, or at least we know somebody and came out on the other side and said, was it worth it or not? But this ultimate death. If we're in a conversation of, should I just get out of here? Is it worth being here? Has there anybody who's been able to come back and tell us if it's worth it? Is there anybody who's still around to be able to tell us about that? It turns out, there are. Since the creation of the Golden Gate Bridge, around 2,000 people have jumped off of it to take their own life. And right now, there are 19 living survivors who've survived that fall from the bridge to the ocean. One guy named Kevin Hines, look, he had a tough go. He was orphaned really young, grew up in a bad foster care family, had a lot of undiagnosed mental health issues. And he came to a conclusion that he didn't wanna be here and nobody wanted him here either. So he went to this bridge. He jumped off of it and had this experience going to the water that we'll come back to in a second. He hits the water. He lives. Somebody saw him jump. They call the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard's coming out to get him. He stays alive, I kid you not, because the sea lion kept poking his head above the water to keep him alive. The Coast Guard picks him up. They're like, it's a miracle. You're a miracle. You don't understand how many bodies we pull out of here. None of them are ever alive. Look, He broke a lot of bones. He was puffy for a long time. But when he was well enough to walk, he went and visited the other 18 living survivors and asked them about their experience falling to the ocean. And they all said they had the same experience, which in his words was this. The millisecond my hands left the rail, it was an instant regret. Everything that I thought was unchangeable about my life was completely changeable, The only thing that was unchangeable in that moment was falling to the ocean. So if we're in that conversation, or at least we know somebody is, could we just make Kevin our friend? Our friend who's actually gone all the way and came back and said, no, there's nothing for you there either. But what do we do when our dreams die? Because to dream is to desire, and to desire is to want, and to want is to want to be here. And like, if you don't want to be here then being here can be really, really hard. It can be really hard. So this is often the place that religion comes in. And religion has a really interesting pitch. I'm sure you've heard it. It It sounds something like this. It goes, hey, I see that you have this hole in your heart, and you keep trying to put the rectangle of sex, drugs, and rock and roll in there, and it doesn't fit. No, it doesn't. You keep trying to put the triangle of celebrity and fame and Instagram likes in there, and it doesn't fit either. No, because the only thing that can is the circle of God, and when you put it in there, it'll fill you in a complete, and we make the divine a product. Now, the only problem is if you make something a product, if that product doesn't work for you, you get rid of it. Like, this toothpaste didn't whiten my teeth. This weed killer didn't kill my weeds. This God let my dreams die, and you get rid of it. The other problem about making the divine a product is that it presupposes that the giver of your existence hasn't been involved in your life already. Like what if the giver of your existence is the one who allowed you to get to this place where the dream could die? Because the dream is the thing in the way to a deeper conversation about you and your life and where you're headed. We call this guy now St. Ignatius of Loyola. He's dead. But he was alive in the 1500s. He was Spanish. He was good with a sword, rascally with the ladies. In one fight, they were fighting the French, and he's doing his thing, and then boom, he got hit in the leg with a cannonball like he did back then. And he goes to the hospital. And he had to stay in the hospital for a year to heal up from his injuries. And he, during that time, he spent his time reading. Now, the hospital didn't have a ro- robust library. All they had was like the stories of saints and the holy scriptures, and he read them. And he had such a transformational experience reading these stories that when he was well enough to walk, he picked up his armor and his vestments and his shield and all his things, and he walked to the nearest monastery, and he laid it at the feet of the monks, and he said, I want to renounce my ways as a warrior. I want to spend the rest of my life serving God. This is the man that founded the Jesuits, if you've ever heard of them, he also developed these things called spiritual practices. And he said in his writings, he said, you know, actually the way that the giver of your existence speaks the loudest about your life and your calling and your vocation is through your desires, that sexy, sexy word. But it takes discernment because desires do lead us to our greatest moments of flourishing, but they can also lead us to destruction as well. Like we've all seen the desire of wealth, lived out in somebody, and it leads them to be open and generous and the best version of themselves. But we've also seen the desire of wealth lead people to be, like, closed off and greedy and, like, the worst version of themselves, right? Like, you might—two people might desire one another physically, relationally, sexually, emotionally, and they need to decide and it, they need to discern if they're willing to do what it takes to to uh, to do to make the vocation of a relationship happen. Uh, you might have some kind of desire for a job in the world, and you need to discern if you're willing to do what it takes— to, uh, you know, the sacrifice it's gonna take to develop a skill and build that knowledge and and go towards that direction. Following your desire always is gonna cost you something. Like I had this moment where like the dream was dying, but I still had this deep, deep desire in me. And I was like, well, what am I supposed to do with this desire? It didn't turn out the way I thought. What am I supposed to do with this? And why is this T-Rex standing in my way? Why am I being argued with it? And I started to realize that maybe what the dream dying was, was this. A dream, a dream is a version of yourself that doesn't have any weaknesses. When you've imagined a dream scenario, you've never imagined that you would have weaknesses or limitations in that scenario. You've never imagined, like, when you cross the finish line of a marathon, you never imagine possibly the nine months of physical therapy to work on your knees because when you get in your 40s, they just get out of the way. You know, they're just like, we're done. Sorry, we're retiring. You know, you might imagine a business that you want to start one day. You never imagine, like, maybe the complicated relationship you have with an investor who fronted the capital for you to start your business. Like, we never imagine that we're going to actually have weaknesses and limitations in these scenarios. We never like to embrace our vulnerabilities vulnerability is not necessarily your weaknesses or limitations it's your relationship to them do you are you scared of them are you ashamed of them do you hide them away from others or possibly maybe your relationship to your weaknesses and limitations is the way you start to connect to the world and each other even to god and i started to see that these arguments were actually like I needed to develop practices against these arguments, but also they were invitations to start to understand certain vulnerabilities that I needed to embrace. And I wanna talk about two of them with you, and we're gonna do that for the rest of our time together. But guess what, we're not gonna do it in a drab way. No, we're gonna do it in an artistic way! Nothing's going to change. On a hot summer day in Portland, Oregon, my wife took our three kids to the Portland Zoo, a delightful place with caged animals, caged parents, and wild and free kids. It's great. You should go sometime. And then my wife is there, and they're making their way through the zoo, and they eventually get to the lion pen, which they have this big rock the lions usually sit on. But it was hot, and they were in the afternoon, and they were down in the shade. Uh, sleeping next to these floor-to-ceiling windows. It's actually really cool. Like, kids and adults can get really close to these sleeping giants. It's like being in Narnia, but with six inches of plexiglass, all right? And so they're standing there looking at these sleeping lions, and then there's this other mom and her kids. And my wife overhears this little boy ask his mom, Mommy, why don't these lions have manes? And this adult woman says to this innocent child, Well, honey, um... These lions don't have manes because um, it's hot out, and they shave the lion's manes in the summertime to keep them cool. Oh no. Uh, Okay, it feels like maybe 100% of you don't know if that's true or not. Uh, Friends, (laughs) friends, I know that we shave poodles and sheep and stuff, but lions come from Africa, all right? Uh, They live on the Serengeti. There's no way that evolutionary headscarf is preventing them from surviving a tepid Pacific Northwest summer day, all right? Um, my, My wife reaches, like, oh, you know, mom to mom, and she's like, oh, these lions are female. They don't grow manes. And she's like, oh, thank you, thank you. And then she didn't tell the child that information. She didn't relay that information. Hopefully he heard my wife. When has the last time your knowledge of lion's manes has ever been tested until just moments ago? That information could have remained in that child throughout his life, adolescence, teenage years, well into college, I can imagine a scenario. He's he's on campus. He sees a girl he fancies. He's like, what's a fun first date that's consensual and we can get to know one another? Go to the zoo! You get a pretzel, you talk about penguins, it's great. He asks her out. She says yes, they go on a date. But you know, like... When you go to the zoo, you're like, what do I know about animals, right? So he's like going through the Rolodex in his head about everything, and he doesn't want to blow it. They get to the penguins first, and he's like, oh, what do I know about penguins? Oh, I saw that March of Penguins documentary. Hey, do you know that the male penguins, they sit with the eggs during the coldest time of the winter while the females go get food, and they like bond together and protect each other from the cold, and they work together. It's like a fellowship of dads, and I hope to be a dad one day. And she's like, Oh, my God. <laughs> I want to be a mom. Ring by spring, you know? It's, like, going really well. It's going really well. He doesn't want to blow it. The day goes on. He's like, I'm hoping for a next date. They get to the lion pen. He's like, what do I know about lions? (gasps) My mom told me something one time. Hey, did you know, do you understand my wife in this moment saved this little boy's future sex life? Do you get it? Like, she was like, no, I want you to find your love. Like, they toasted her at their wedding. Do you get what I'm saying? Like... (laughs) <laughs> we, we know a lot of stuff. We are in an age of knowing, an age of information. Right now, there are 5,000 books being published every single day. There's more information written in a Sunday paper than was ever recorded in the ancient world. We have the internet, which most of you plagiarize. Like, we <laughs> know a lot of stuff, right? And, like, we know so many things. Like, uh, but when we hear the voice say, nothing's going to change, Sometimes we assume, yeah, it's just something I know to be true. We never really check where that information comes. And the thing about nothing's ever going to change is that it's not a knowing problem, it's a narrative problem. It's not about what you know, it's about how you know what you know. The famous psychologist Carl Jung said this: until we make conscious the unconscious, sorry, until we make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. This is why some of you in the last year have gone, I think God told me to break up with you. Is it that? Is it God? Or is it just your dad? You know, if you, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life, and you will call it fate. Right now, our five senses are taking in way more information than we could ever hope to imagine. And what our brains are doing is they're processing all that information into a narrative. And most of the time, that narrative is, am I safe or not? Am I safe or not right now? Like, if you... You walked into this chapel, you probably didn't even think about it because you've been here before, you just walked in and sat down. You never questioned if you were safe or not. But if you were have walked in, and then you saw on stage like a pack of wild wolves tearing apart a caribou carcass, you'd be like, oh, I'm not getting eaten alive today. No! It's just they're happening all the time. We're narrative-making machines. We're making up these narratives all the time. The other thing is, is that we also have these narratives happening all the time, and they're a little bit more insidious. They sound like this. They go, this is who I am this is what i'm capable of um, <laughs> this is who i am this is what i'm capable of doing and this is how the rest of my life is going to turn out and those narratives are happening all the time too those narratives came to us by how we learned to survive as kids in the world about how adults and our parents treated us when we were young and they're happening all the time too i had a time in my life where i had some really bad narratives i was saying some really destructive things to myself you ever had those moments time seasons I was saying some really awful things. And I was working with a therapist and some friends to kind of deal with it. And she was like, pay attention to what you say to yourself. Pay attention to your self-talk. And so I was. I was paying attention to the narratives I would say to myself. And, but I was like, are there ever moments where like, the narratives go away for a little bit? Are there ever moments where that's, I, you know, like, maybe it's impossible to have a life without narratives. But are there ever moments where it quiets down a bit? And there are. And we call those moments moments of wonder. Wonder. Have you ever been to a concert? What's a concert? Some human beings, some instruments, a sound system, lights, an audience, a venue, right? And it's wonderful. But there's always a moment when those elements at a concert seem to transcend the elements themselves. And you're there and you're like, I don't know what's happening. I'm not here. Right? And it's amazing. And you're there in the moment and you're filled with wonder. Or like I surf, you know, sometimes. I live in Austin, Texas. There's not a lot of beachfront property there. Maybe it's getting into nature. But surfing is amazing because like the surface is literally moving. There's animals below and above. There's unfolding weather systems as the water hits the land. The waves are caused by an orbiting planet all around our planet. All of that's happening. You're just trying not to drown as you're paddling out, right? But there's always a moment, usually when you're past the breakers and you take a moment on your board to catch your breath. If you're paying attention, you'll see all of this hugeness of life unfolding and you will be overwhelmed (laughs) at how small I'm so small in the face of all of this and you'll be filled with wonder. My wife and I were met and married in Seattle, Washington. And then a few years later, somebody offered to pay me uh, to be an artist, like an artist in residency in Houston, Texas. And when somebody pays you to be an artist, you say yes. And so we made our way uh, down from Seattle to Houston, but we took all of our stuff in a moving truck and we made it a bit of a sightseeing tour. The first place we stopped was a, a place called Craters of the Moon National Park. It's in Idaho. I'd never heard of it, but thousands of years ago, this volcano exploded, lava rock went everywhere. It looks like the surface of the moon. It's also one of the least light-polluted places in the United States. And so when we were checking in, the, like, the ranger was like, oh, by the way, the stars are amazing here because there's not a lot of light. Uh, you should stay up. And we're like, OK, we will. And then we're setting up our tent. People were like, hey, you should stay up. Like, the stars are amazing. We're like, we will. Thank you so much. And then it was like midnight, and we had shared a bottle of wine, and we're like, we're tired. And uh, we're like, cool, stars are fine. And uh, like four in the morning, some really early time, I feel this nudge in the sleeping bag, and my wife's like, I got to pee. And I was like, I do too. Uh, The bathrooms are down the way. We'll just, I'll walk with you. We'll go to the bathrooms together. So we unzip the tent, and it was this!
0: It was this!
1: I've lived in cities my whole life where there's a standard 16 stars out every night. <laughs> this is what the night sky looks like when you live where there's no light. And I was filled with wonder. I mean, and P, I was like, oh, this is amazing. I got to go. I'll come back. Just let me go. I'm going to come back. And I did. And I came back. And we just stood there, amazed at the, like, the wonder and the beauty of it all. What is the common denominator between you And uh, and, uh, between the stars and, like, the concert and nature and the surfing, all of that, the common denominator is you. You're the common denominator. Because wonder is not an exterior destination. Wonder is an interior filter that you learn to look at life through. It's usually most accessible to us in new situations because we don't have a narrative about it. Like, I had the chance after college to backpack around Europe for a while, and it's a really great thing. We had these, like, train passes and stuff. But this thing would happen. We'd get off the train, and we'd be like, oh, this is the most beautiful city I've ever seen in my life. And then two days later, we'd be like, I'm so bored. Let's go to the next most beautiful city I've ever seen in my life. What happened? Did, we, did the city stop being beautiful? No. We just got used to it. We developed a narrative about it. And, and uh, familiarity is what kills wonder. Familiarity is a very helpful tool. Like, I have kids that have sleepovers now, and so, like, it's helpful when, like, they finally all went to bed and, oh, I forgot something in the kitchen, but I don't want to turn on the lights and wake them up, but I know how to navigate the furniture in the, in the living room in the dark, like, because I'm familiar with it, that, and I don't stub my toe. That's very helpful. Familiarity is helpful. Familiarity is not helpful when you get married for a long time and you get bored with your spouse. Familiarity is not helpful when you're in your life and your body every single day and you're like, nothing's going to change. It's always going to be the same. It's never going to get better. So we should go to the ocean, and we should go look at the stars, and we should go to concerts because that opens us up. But also we have jobs and responsibilities and school and papers, all this stuff. And I was like, are there... Are there some kind of practice, there's some kind of hack I could do every single day that kind of clues me in onto this wonder filter? And there is. And I started doing it. I did it this morning. And I'd like to share it with you. But before we do that, we need to look at some art to see what's happening. So there's this guy named Scott Listfield. He's a great artist, a good follow on Instagram. But he has these series of images where this astronaut is walking around our world. Now it's not necessarily a post-apocalyptic world, that's just what Los Angeles looks like. But it's just a world... (laughs) It's just a world where there's no other people. And because there's no other people, we begin to look at all of these things that maybe we've seen, but from a different perspective. We start to share the perspective of the astronaut. And we go, yeah, what is all this stuff? Who made all these things? What is this thing in Southern California that promises joy inside of you, right? And, and we begin to develop a different kind of narrative because we're unknowing the narratives we already have. And it's in the unknowing that the doorway of wonder opens up. So what I propose to you is that we all become A Visitor to our own life every day become an astronaut of wonder and as an astronaut of wonder Here you have a tool and that tool is a question and here's the question for you. The question is Well, what don't I know? What don't I know? Whenever you find yourself in your life and you're like I'm so bored It's never gonna change. It's always gonna be this way. Just go. Well, what don't I know about what's happening right now? What don't I know about what's happening? like right now I'm sure you have many assumptions about what this is. Like this room, this chapel, what's supposed to happen in here, right? But like, what don't we know about this building? I'm sure we could look up who built it and stuff. But what about, what if one of the contractors that came one day... He had been dating this girl and he was in love with her and then she broke up with him and he came in heartbroken and he was like working on the beams there and then in a moment of inspiration, he's never done this before, he took out a pen and he began to pen the greatest love poem that's ever been written, better than Rilke or Rumi and all of them, and it's right there in the walls, the greatest love poem that's ever been written by a human covered up with plaster and paint. Probably not, but you don't know! (laughs) What if underneath this chapel... Is a tunnel to a water slide to an underground lake with a pirate ship like the movie Goonies? Probably not, but you don't know, right? And inside all of you right now is a heart that's beating that you're not in charge of. All of us are here right now because of something we're not in charge of. And if you spend a second thinking about that, it'll fill you with wonder. Right? And all of you here have experiences and secrets. Oh man, if we saw some of the secrets in this room, we'd be like, wow, this room is a lot spicier than I thought. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's so much you don't know. I remember this one moment I was working on a creative project, and I was by myself create, as, as most things are, I was solving a problem, and I couldn't figure it out. And I got really frustrated, and I was by myself, and I said this out loud. I just said, oh, I'm never going to be a great artist. And I was like, oh, time out what? I'm never going to be a great artist? I just made a narrative about myself. I just made a guess about how my life is going to turn out. So I was like, I got to change that. I got I to adapt it, right? And so I did this. I, um, and that narrative's not hard for me to understand. I'm not formally trained as an artist. I've never made gobs of money as an artist. I've never won awards as an artist. You know, things we usually equate with success. So I just started developing this narr- narrative. And I was like, I got to change it. So I did this. I said, um, I'm going to change it. Instead of I'm never going to be Because, you know, I didn't become overly arrogant and be like, I'm gonna be the greatest artist ever. Like we have Kanye West for that, right? But I was like, I changed. I'm never going to be To I'm on my way to being a great artist. I'm on my way. I'm on my way means if I fail at something, it's not evidence to the argument that I'm a failure. It just means I'm learning as I go and I'm on my way. And I like to make jokes and I like to make things. So I made this t-shirt that says future famous dead artist. Because I am in a tradition that typically when you make it is after you've died. And it's like a joke for me. I like wear this shirt as a bed shirt. And when I wake up in the morning and I wash my face and I see myself in the mirror, I'm like, I'm on my way. And it makes me giggle. It makes me giggle. But it also changes the trajectory of where I think I'm going. Because look, all our arguments are are just simply like assumptions put together. Arguments are assumptions put together. And if you can slowly take apart the assumptions that build an argument, it'll open you up to a universe of possibility. And look, I'm not the only person who's ever had to have this conversation. Like, lots of people have had this... (laughs) Oh, are we on? Hi! Hi, everybody. It's me, Scott from the past. Oh, my gosh. Hi, Scott from the present. Uh, Hey! How's he doing, everybody? Is he doing all right? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, Uh, thanks. How do you feel like you're doing? I I think it's going well. Uh Uh-huh. Did you... uh X, I y, did these? I did earlier, yeah. Remember last time? It's, not, it's good. not good. It's not good. No, it wasn't good. Well, uh, everybody wants you to paint, so why don't you, Scott, in the present, yeah, do, do a painting? Why don't you go over there and do that? And I'll take over the narrative right now. Uh, so, we're talking about the conversations that we
0: tell ourselves, the narratives we have about ourselves, and those are trying to help us to survive, but guess what? They're not the truth of our lives or the fullness of our lives. And we have no idea where our lives are going to go. That's the great mystery we're all invited into. In fact, one, another great mystery that happens in our lives is the places that uh, don't work out end up being the places that form us the most. And our particular vulnerabilities sometimes become the way in which we give light to the world. So in true artist fashion, here in my studio, uh, I'd like to show you some drawings and tell you a story. So let's do that. Once a great ship was built. It was strong, mighty, something to behold. And it was given a great purpose, to deliver important seeds on the far side of the ocean. The ship celebrated its great purpose It thought, how great of a task. I must be valuable. Look at this great purpose I was given. This is what I was meant to do. So it set sail. On its journey, an unforeseen storm came upon it. It thought it could handle it. It was sure it could handle it. But the storm was much bigger than it planned for. It couldn't control the situation. The ship was wiped out by the storm. It found itself wrecked some rocks it couldn't move it couldn't go anywhere the great ship was lost in the ocean as it sat there for a long time it sat with its failure its failure to fulfill its purpose but something unforeseen happened slowly the water seeped into the seeds and they began to germinate and grow they grew and grew and over time there was a large forest. One day, another ship came passing by, also broken and floundering from an unforeseen storm. It came to the broken ship island and asked, May I rest here a while? I'm so tired from my journey. The great ship replied, Sure, by all means. As the new ship rested, the great ship gave some of its wood to build a shelter for the crew of the other ship. They stayed a while. After they rested and were healed, the new ship left renewed for its journey. Thank you for your hospitality. You really helped me. After a while, another ship came by. That ship also asked if it could rest for a while. It had been bruised and battered in a storm too and needed a place to be. The great ship took some more of its wood and built another shelter for the much larger crew. When it was healed, it also went on its way. This kept happening. New ship after new ship kept coming, all injured by an unforeseen storm and needing a place to be for a while. The great ship realized that it had something to give, a place to rest, and solidarity from being wrecked as well by the unforeseen storms of the great sea. Pretty soon, the great ship decided to build a lighthouse so that all ships passing by that way could find a place to be cared for, to rest, and then continue on their journeys, Throughout the years, the great ship cared for many, many broken and bruised ships. This was a quizzical mystery to the great ship. Out of its own wreckage and failure, it became a gift to others. It always wondered if this was the purpose all along.
1: This ends at 11:15, right? Oh crap! Okay, well, what should we do? You suckin' or ugly, really quick? Or should we just go? What do you think? Go on. If you need to sneak out, why don't you do that? But let's talk about you suckin' or ugly, all right? <laughs> I would like to talk to you today about you suckin' or ugly. Yes. Um, so friends, we got to talk about a weird story that happens in the Bible. You know the Ark of the Covenant? You know the one that melted all the na- Nazis' faces off in Raiders of the Lost Ark? Somebody steals it. They steal it, and then they're bringing it back into Jerusalem, and it says the king of the land, King David, is out there dancing with all his might. It was such a crazy moment. It, like, he said he was we're only wearing a linen ephod, which is like Old Testament tidy whities And he's there in the land. So it's coming in. They wrote this down. It, this is like a thousands of years old story. It was so weird they wrote it down. Here's what it says. As the Ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul. This is David's wife, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. So here's the situation. The Ark of the Covenant, right? A symbol of a covenant relationship between creator and creation. The giver of existence and those who exist. So a symbol of existence itself is coming into their midst. And there's somebody there dancing with all their might. And then there's somebody on the side despising the person who figured out how to dance. How do we become people in the presence of existence who know how to dance? And then how do we become the people who despise those who figured out how to dance? That's what I want to finish this bit on. Let's talk about superheroes really quick. Have you seen the latest superhero thing? Do you, yeah, right? Do you notice I don't even have to give a title? Because we're in this crazy time where Hollywood figured out how to make billions of dollars off comic books, and so it's just like movie after movie after show on Plus, all the things. I love it. It's great. But I was reading a story to my son the other day, and a centaur was in it, he's like, what's a centaur? And I was like, whoa, buddy, get ready. A centaur is like a horse, not really half of a horse, like the the main part of a horse cut off the neck, and then you put a torso of a human on it, and it's kind of like, you know, half of an animal. It's like an ancient superhero, because back then they didn't think about laser beams coming out of their eyes or cutlery out of their hands. They just said, what's big? Horses! Half of that. And that's how they made superheroes. Look at it! A minotaur, half a cow. A fawn, half of a deer. It's just half of animals, right? But I was like, yeah, it's kind of a weird one. He's like, well, do they have, like, superhero outfits? And I was like, that's a great question, man, because I'm not quite sure how... They would wear clothes. I mean, just even pants. Like, how do you? You think you know, and then you're like, oh, I don't know that one. That's a the thing is, <laughs> if you think about it, since the beginning of human existence with the centaur and stuff, all the way up to like Iron Man and Superman and all of these things, we have invented superhero stories. Why? Because I think when each of us begins to walk down the path of our life, we go, uh-oh, I need to be more. Right? I need to be more. There's a path of success we all want to walk down, right? And as you start walking down that path, you're like, uh, I don't think I have what it takes. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't have the right skills. I don't have the right face or voice or body or mind or eyes or whatever it is. I don't have what it takes to get to that destination. And we begin these lists. We all have these lists about what's keeping us back from getting where we want to go. The thing about life, though, is that other people are also heading down a similar path. And you're like, whoa, you're going the same direction. So cool. But how did you get so far ahead what are you doing that I'm not doing? And then what we do, we do is we start to engage in a comparative conversation. We start to compare ourselves. And we try to get out of our path and get into somebody else's. And look, I had a long time comparison with a celebrity that I'd never told anybody about, but I'm gonna share it with you. For years, because he's had some ridiculous years and I've, been, I've gotten over it, but like for years, my secret celebrity comparison was with hip hop artist, Kanye West, obviously, because we have lots in common. No, it's because I know. It's yay. Please say yay. It's, it's because I met Kanye West one time backstage at the Sasquatch Festival in Washington State. He just got done doing the graduation set, which is a great album, and I had backstage passes, and I was at the beer garden. He came back. People were like, pictures, pictures. I was like, me too, and we took a picture together. He was as excited as I was, and that's it. That's the only time I've met Kanye West, but a little bit later, I found out that we're the same age. Our birthdays are just two months apart. And so whenever things weren't working out on the journey of my life, I just because of a number invented by astronomy, I would just go, well, who else is doing trying to do what I'm doing? Oh, I wonder what Kanye West is up to. And I would look to Kanye. I would look to Kanye and see what he was up to. And he's a very fashionable guy. He like, has his own clothing line and shoe line. He's a billionaire because of these things. Yeah, and he's very confident. You know what, he's very confident in the clothes that he wears. This is the only time I've ever felt confident in clothes. <laughs> It's the only moment that I've ever felt confident and close. You can tell by that power stance, like, I had made it, right? Or he performs and sells out arenas worldwide and stuff. And I had, this is not too long ago, six people came to a show of mine. That picture's weird if you don't know what it's from. And then um, he says stuff on television. He's affecting culture. He's a celebrity. And look, I was on TV one time. I don't know if it affected culture, but I was on The Price is Right. And with Bob Barker... Look, in 1999, when some of you weren't born, uh, it was really cool to bleach your hair white. You're living through it now. You're just recycling what we did. And that's not a puka shell necklace. That's a hemp necklace made by a girl in college I was into. Yeah, and so I played. Yeah, I won the prizes right. Went to the showcase showdown and spun the wheel. I lived all your game show fantasies, right? So maybe I beat Kanye there. But look, we are in an age of social media, and that's feeding that comparison. And I understand. I'm not here to poo hoo social media. I understand that I'm here because of social media. Thank you for your support. But it's kind of messing us up a little bit. Let's talk about how it's messing us up. Say you want to get married, which is like a wedding is like a crazy thing to put on right now, right? And uh, you're like, I need some ideas. So you go on Pinterest and you're like, wedding ideas. And then this like catalog of bridesmaids' dresses and table settings and all of this stuff happens. And you're like, oh my God, it's so much, it's so much. But you're organized, you have all the boards, you have a notebook that's this big with all the day of your wedding comes. And you're, it's all, it's a perfect wedding. It's a perfect, wedding. it's a Pinterest worthy wedding, except it's a little more humid than it typically is, nothing's really swaying, it's just kinda, nah, 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 no, she looks beautiful. I've seen you, I've seen you bridesmaids, yeah. Or say, say you wanna cook, and you're like, I don't need to make Thanksgiving for my whole family, I'll start with something easy with cornbread and hot dogs, how hard can that be? Turns out, it's not as easy as you thought! I didn't know they grow! Or say you want to travel. Oh, we've all seen pictures of people traveling in like a p- exotic place, finding themselves, usually wearing a fedora. And you're like, I want to go on a journey to find myself. I want to own a fedora. And so you save up your money and you travel 27 hours on plane, uh, bus and rickshaw to get to this place. And then you're like, I'm here. And it turns out everybody the lie of travel photography is there's nobody there. There's always somebody there because what's happening is that we're given this curated reality every single day and all we can do is show up to real reality and we go, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And we've been doing it doesn't work for so long now that we're starting to know that it's making us sad and depressed. It's making us not want to be in our lives because I, like, I think what we're saying is like, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. It doesn't work because of me. And when we've entered into it doesn't work because of me, we've entered into a deeply sacred conversation. Uh, A lot of faith traditions have this conversation. I want to share one from the tradition based on this school. So this is a painting of Peter and John. John wrote some amazing, uh, he wrote some books that are in the Bible, makes amazing royalty checks, right? And uh, I don't know if you've read some of his books, but one of them is like a spiritual memoir. It's about his time with Jesus and is transformative to him. And it's interesting; he writes it from a third-person perspective. Have you picked up on this? So he writes a spiritual memoir, but he doesn't. It's not from a first-person. He writes himself into the story. And the crazy thing is, the way that he writes himself into his own book is not like John or that guy or that guy was just. You know, if you wrote a spiritual memoir, you'd be like that person was just happy to be there with all the magic and stuff. John writes himself into his own book, and he calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved, that's real arrogant to write yourself in your own book that way. We'll come back to that in a second. Peter, we don't have time for an in-depth Bible study. You're welcome, but we know some highlights, right? He's a fisher of men, or fisherman. that becomes a fisher of men. He's very zealous. There's the arrest, the cutting off of ear, reattaching of ear, the fireplace, the uh, you know the fire, the denials, the rooster crowing, crucifixion, resurrection, weird ghost stuff. I'm going fishing, uh, fishing on what, catching nothing. Miracle on the other side. Swimming in your underwear. Breakfast on the beach. Peter, come and walk with me. Do you love me three times? Jesus asked Peter three times, "Do you love me?" He's counteracting the three. Den- Niles, right? And if you've ever been in a relationship, and you messed it up, and that person comes back to you to restore the relationship, you know that you go, man, I really blew it back there, and uh, I'm so embarrassed by that, and I'm real sorry. Thank you for calling. I just, I didn't know what to do. I was really embarrassed, and I'm, I'm so sorry. Are we doing this still? Is this, are we, are we still, I want to do this thing with you, right? That's what happens between normal people. That's not How Peter responds, and John writes about it in his book, okay? And here's what he says. He says, then Jesus said to Peter, follow me. And then Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved, he wrote that about himself in his own book. His name is John, not the disciple. He could, the pen and chiseling, I don't know how they wrote it back then. It's so needlessly long. He could have just said John. Okay, and he said... I'm an author. That's very arrogant to do that. Okay, uh, Lord, who's going... What did he say? go. <laughs> Lord, who's going to betray him? When Peter saw him, he said, well, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? Look, it took me a really long time. Let's land this plane. It took me a really long time to understand that you can be the kind of follower of good news, whatever that is. The follower of good news and be like, at the thing, doing all the things and be like, this is great. I love this. This is really fun. It's the best. This is great. And we're right. This is great. Hallelujah. Hey, um, can I ask a question? Um, what about them? I mean, don't get me wrong. This is great. Hallelujah, glory, Maranatha, all the things. But like, um, seriously, what about them? Like, um, do you like them more than me? Because their life looks awesome. And and honestly like my life really sucks right now. And I don't I don't understand cuz we're doing the exact same thing. And then you can be the other kind of follower of good news and go, I get what this is about. I get it. I'm the one who's loved. I'm the beloved. See, love, oh, love, love wants to pour itself out into you. But you can't receive love if you secretly hate who love made you to be. Because this is the only container you've been given to receive love in. And if all you're trying to do every single day is trade it out, that love is always going to fall flat. It'll always fall flat. One last story. I ended up at a charismatic meeting one time, just one time. Look, I grew up, I grew up Lutheran. Like we never talked about the Holy Spirit. He's like a bad uncle that doesn't come to holidays anymore. And I don't know if you've been to a charismatic meeting, but it's very exciting. It's a lot of like flags and trumpets and jazz hands. It's great. I wasn't doing any of that. I was sitting in the back row, just like, what? And uh, like somebody came and offered me a tambourine, which is the most forgiving of all the instruments. And I was like, no, thank you. I'm just watching. I was just watching. Right? I was just watching. And uh, I remember I was just looking around at everything and I noticed a guy in the far back corner who I can only describe as like a chubby Dwight Schrute from The Office, just... Pirouette! (laughs) To the Lord. And it was hilarious. Like, it was like watching travel guide Rick Stees like, try out videos before you think you can dance. And I was laughing so hard. Like, inwardly I was laughing. I'm not a monster. Inwardly I was laughing. (laughs) Because it's really funny to see a middle-aged man do moves that six-year-olds do at ballet class, right? And because he wasn't a stage person. Like, we're all used to stage people doing stage things. It's the people in the far back corner who really believe what they're doing. And I just remember watching him the whole time, laughing at first and then getting quiet. And then I noticed that I was jealous. And I was like, dude, how did you figure out how to be comfortable in your own skin? I want to dance. I don't want to stand on the side and despise those who figured out how to dance. We live in a massive culture of comparison more than any other humans ever and we need I want to give you this one practice and then we can go. Uh, We need a practice and that practice is whenever you find yourself in a comparative narrative just move from comparison to contribution. Just be like no 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 I can be a contribution. I am a contribution. I can be a contribution today because if what getting if what comparison is is getting out of your path and getting into somebody else's then the t-rex is right you do suck you suck at being somebody else but contribution is the slow daily work of uncovering the hidden path of desire that's been put in you to walk contribution is the slow daily work of, of of noticing the hidden path of desire that's been put in you to walk have you ever looked back on your life and you're like oh my gosh i'm on a path i can see it i'm on a path i've been on a path and then you come to your present day and you're like and it's gone and then you look at your future and you're like i have no idea right (laughs) contribution is that slow daily work of uncovering that hidden path of desire and uh contribution isn't necessarily like uh making things and stuff like that although there may be artifacts but contribution is what you love it's your love catalyzed what do you love and why what do you love and why and if you, it's been proven by therapists and psychologists that if you were to write down three what you love and why's every single day, say in like a gratitude journal, gratitude is what you love and why. It would do a number of things to you. It would uh, it would improve your mental health, your physical health. It improves your sleeping habits. But what you're also doing is you're starting to make a catalog of loves. A catalog. Oh yeah, I love pizza, like we all do. You know, uh, that will skip. Over. You're making a catalog of loves because when the Kanye West of your life comes to you and is like, do you want to trade lives with me? And you're like, I don't know, Kanye. I don't know. It looks really complicated, but fun to be an international hip-hop star. You would have to give up your entire catalog of loves for something that couldn't happen. But if you make a large enough catalog of loves, you'll be like, no, Kanye, no. I don't want to. I've actually been given so, so much.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, and we'd love it if you would leave us a review.